tomorrow vision, you know, if you use a business tomorrow vision, is to have athletes reach their absolute potential um, in a in a way that creates longevity uh, without a significant cost to their lives around sport. And so, what my mechanism for doing that is to take this approach of, well, how little, how precise can I be on the dosage of training? so that I give them the, the right amount with the aim to be the least amount of training to achieve the maximum outcome. And the purpose of that is obviously to give them this life around what they do. Um, so it's an efficiency conversation. It's the, you know, why would you pay more for something um, if you could get it, you know, at, at, at a certain price? And most people aspire to pay less for something. <laughs> I don't know any, I don't know any people. Yet when you look at sports people, and you know, I have this conversation, I use this analogy quite often, I'll say to athletes, so when you go to the store and something's $10, do you, uh, do you hand it across $12? And they're like, what? Okay, would you pay more than what it's worth? No. I said, so why do you, why do you go down the pathway of doing more training than necessary? There's this notion of, well, if I do it more, it'll cover my base. So that doesn't apply in finance. You don't go, well, if I pay $12, I'm going to get more. You're going to go, well, can I get it for $8? And so it's interesting having those conversations, but that underlies my philosophy, and it's it's a, it's this junction or this sweet spot, which is not about compromising performance, um, but it's about balancing the maximum performance that they can achieve that they're physically capable of, um, with a a notion of well-being and a, and a holistic approach that they have a life and they can compete for a longer period of time and they can be as successful as they have the potential to be but it's not this significant cost to um, to who they are as people and their you know their social development their professional development etc etc welcome to the run culture podcast my name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced runner and running physiotherapist. I created this podcast not only so I had an excuse to talk running each and every week, something that I love to do, but more importantly, this podcast gives me the opportunity to interview fellow runners, friends and health professionals in a relaxed and easygoing format. This podcast is designed for the everyday runner, so we can all live, learn, grow and enjoy everything there is to running together. I hope you enjoy the show. Very different. Well, do you know like anything about whether the Olympics will go ahead or that you're still um, just as in the dark as everyone? No, look, good question. I mean, I think that uh, I would say that everyone's in the dark in as far as predicting what will happen. There's obviously those who are involved who would know what are all the contingencies and what are the tipping points? Like, what are the critical moments where they will decide yes or no? And I would presume and I would hope that behind the scenes, people are looking at the compromises that would need to be made for the Olympics to potentially go ahead. Um, I'll be honest. I mean, my take is this. I don't see it going ahead as we've always experienced it. Like, I think it's incredibly naive to think that uh, in 2021, in the late July, early August 2021, that we will have Olympic Games as we've seen before. Um, My fear is that that's the only bar that people are working towards because I think if that's the bar, if it's this binary approach, you know, zeros are ones, I don't think it's going to happen. I'd hate to see it be a zero and not happen, but I just don't think it's feasible or realistic to think that it's going to be as it was. So uh, there'll be people in the know who are dealing with 
the grey in between those that, those two approaches and saying this is what we're going to have. And look, there's some fun in, in speculating and some fun in uh, and there's some healthy, I think there's some healthy professional practice in saying you know if I was in that situation, what are the things that I would be doing if I if my responsibility was to put on the games, what are the compromises I would make so that it could go ahead. My other fear is that. And we're seeing this more and more. The, you know, I mean, we're seeing this in Australia with football. Like the financial piece, we've oh, always yeah. said that it drives sport, and it's coming. It's coming to the fore that it really does. And yeah. so, my fear is that because of the financial implications of not running the games, is that they push ahead with the games for the financial reasons and put people at risk. And that's my biggest. But I'm, you know, people would say, "Oh, surely that wouldn't happen." And <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing is that. <laughs> Uh, because of this unique situation, there is this desire that the show must go on, and in that, risks are being taken or will be taken that you wouldn't normally logically apply. And so, you know, there's part of me that says, you know, there's part of me that says on certain days, like there's no chance it's going to happen. Like there are, I'm like, like logically, if I use my logical brain and my rational brain, the likelihood of happening is really low; it won't happen. And then there's part of me that says, oh, there'll be some compromise. They they have the ability to make it happen and the optimistic part says we'll be fine by July, August and it will happen. And then there's another part that says, um, oh, my goodness, they, they're keen for – they're prepared to go ahead with this at all cost. Yeah. Um, and so – and that one intimidates me because this, this all-cost approach isn't something I subscribe to as a coach in the way I prepare athletes and it's not something I subscribe to in, in general life. Like it, there, there is a – now, there is a cost, and that you know, uh, and there are things to weigh up. And I just I'm fearful that because of the financial ramifications, that you know the powers that be go ahead irrespective of what should happen. And I mean, you know, the things that we're talking about, and I'm happy to share this. Like the things we talk about in the national governing body and with our Olympic committee, um, is the reality that if Tokyo doesn't go ahead, Beijing probably won't go ahead as a Winter Games. Yeah. And so. When you start looking at the consequences, and the consequences shouldn't drive the process per se, but when you start hanging out those consequences, you start to speculate and go, wow, like, you know, it isn't just about Tokyo anymore. It's actually about Beijing Winter Olympics, and then it's actually about the Olympic movement as a whole. Yeah. Um, and you know that when people, you know, whether it's people or organisations are put in the corner, they tend to fight in an irrational fashion, and so I'm really interested. To see, when you look at what's what's at stake, it's such a it's such a it will be such a big decision. But and my fear is always that you know the decision should be around the athletes, and I think those day, those days may have passed. Well, like, how are your athletes coping with it? Like, yeah, like you, um, I might just introduce you to to some of the listeners. Um, um, so I'm very grateful for you to accepting my invite to jump on the podcast. Um, so yeah, for those that don't know, John O'Hall is a renowned coach um, in the world of triathlon. Um, so you're currently he's currently the head coach of Triathlon Canada, um, a program he's been a part of since 2015, um, and coaches top Canadian triathletes such as Tyler Mislachuk, uh, plus a handful of international world class athletes on the ITU circuit. Um, he was. Uh, prior to the role with Canada, one of the lead advisors for Triathlon USA. And of course, prior to this, he was also a lead coach for Triathlon Australia for a number of years and also worked at the VIS for seven odd years. Uh, pr prior to his coaching career, he was also um, in 1997, the former Australian road cycling champ and a world duathlon champ himself as an athlete. 
So it's an absolute pleasure, pleasure to have Jono on the show. Um, yeah, thank, thanks for agreeing to be on the show. And yeah, I, I just wanted to get started with like, I suppose we've had a bit of a chat about, you know, the doom and gloom of, you know, the current state of the world. Um, but how, how have you coped with it with your athletes like Tyler Mislijak and, um, and keeping them motivated and how's training changed? Yeah, no, look, it's firstly, I mean, it's obviously, it's a pleasure to be on and it's, a, it's always a pleasure to be talking to people who are invested in athletic performance and willing to talk about it and share knowledge. And so, like, the privilege is, is actually all mine. Um, it's interesting that you use two terms there, which I've been really cautious of. We use the term doom and gloom and it's um, one of the things we've worked hard on is not to go down that pathway. And I'll be honest, it's been very, very hard. I mean, it was, it was easier early on and obviously as time passed, it's got harder and harder because it is behaviour and it is thought patterns that I think we all default to. And so I've had the privilege that the athletes I work with have, have, uh, have been incredible. They've handled this incredibly well. Um, I'd like to think that we've played a significant role behind the scenes in helping them do that, in providing support. I think every coach I've spoken to maybe approached this in the early days in a different way. Um, the way we approached it was to try and maintain um, some status quo obviously knowing that the status quo as far as travel, competing, et cetera, would be different, but the status quo as far as routine, uh, schedule and process, and so that the athletes were always in some sort of familiar ground, even though the things around that were obviously very, very different. And so there's this, there's this notion of, you know, keeping what we could the same and, and just taking what was different on the chin. And so um, through that, I mean, the majority of my athletes have handled that part very well. The first phase was very, was the most difficult. I think it was obviously the most emotional piece, that initial part of change um, caused the most angst. And once we got through that piece, we've settled down. Um, I think the emotion settled, um, the reality has kicked in, so to speak, and then in that we were able to then change our direction and, and start to change the training direction. And an example of that was we had all the athletes in their individual homes initially, um, and then we were able to bring them back to a centralised uh, location in Canada and move that next step towards being as, you know, as close to back to normal as is feasible. Um, and so, and in, you know, underpinning that all the time was this notion of schedule, routine, purpose, um, but, you know, mirrored with uh, or balanced with some compassion as well. Um, and so it's been a very organic approach and the communication piece and the monitoring piece has been high because um, I think I felt that I've had to keep an eye on the athletes and make sure that their mental health uh, has always been at the forefront, but we've had a, I guess we've tapped into understanding where they're really at and knowing that if that changes, then we would have to change. Um, but like I said, I think, I think what I've discovered is that, and it doesn't come as a surprise, that you know the athletes I work with are very resilient. Um, they're very human. They're not. They're not. You know, they're not mechanistic in the sense that they haven't been impacted emotionally. Um, and so they've got that balance of that, you know, getting on with it as athletes, but balancing out the fact that it, you know, it has impacted them. And, um, and so we've got them through this this difficult period. In Canada, for example, um, we were hoping to compete um, in September. There were still races on the calendar, and we had that glimmer of hope. And when we realised that couldn't, it actually couldn't happen. We couldn't get insurance, and we couldn't meet uh, the guidelines that our international federation set to be able to compete. Um, we've created some pseudo competition opportunities for the Canadians in Canada so they do get something out of the year they get to rehearse and practice and I guess see the 
you know, potentially see the fruits of the work we have been able to do. So there's this notion of, you know, the, the process and some of the processes remained exactly the same uh, in spite of COVID and the things around that, the implementation is obviously very different. So I'll be looking forward to getting through this next two week window where the athletes are doing some lab testing. We're doing this kind of pseudo racing and these race scenarios that are different. Um, once we get through that, I think everyone is looking forward to a little bit of downtime and then looking forward to what happens next. But um, yeah, I've got to give a lot of credit to the athletes on, on the way they've handled it. Not all the athletes have handled it the same. And I have had a, a couple of athletes who have left the program, which just, uh, I just think a whole heap of things have come together. That's sp specifically the athletes who were targeting Tokyo, probably acknowledging this would be their last Olympics or their or their only chance. I think it's been very hard for them to, to you know, to look at it 12 months forward and especially look at it 12 months forward when there's no guarantees. And some of those people have struggled to stick to the process, so to speak. And I respect that as well. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been an interesting experience. It's almost like I feel like I'm sitting in this social experiment um, or certainly a coaching experiment and, uh, and learning as I go. Uh, and no one was prepared for this. No one, you know, no one has ever been prepared for this. So anyone who you know says, oh, I'm nailing this, I've got this, and I was prepared for this, I kind of laugh. I'm like, <laughs> no, there's some people who are, who are doing a really good job, and, and, and mainly they're doing a good job by dealing with their individual situations and their individual athletes and adapting how they coach to suit those individuals and their circumstance. Yeah. And like with someone like, say, a Tyler, um, who he won the, the practice event last year in Tokyo, uh, He's he's a little bit on, he's on the younger side, so would that probably be a, a case why like like how's he's probably managed it okay given that he's not at the end of his career? Yeah, Tyler. I mean, Tyler having won the test event um, did change his perspective. I mean, it's one of the things we had to work on. So our plan has always been around his physical maturation, which probably aligns more with Paris twenty twenty four, and so. We had this crisis, which was about looking at what we called the horizon, knowing that Tokyo would fall you know, before the horizon. And so the approach was always to say, we're not going to discount Tokyo, but we're not targeting Tokyo. We're targeting Paris. And if we're good enough along the way and Tokyo presents us an opportunity, we're obviously not going yeah. to not, you know, not capitalise on that. And so obviously off the back of the test event, that did change things initially because obviously everyone jumps on the bandwagon of, oh, you, you know, you now need to shift and focus shift your, your focus on Tokyo. And for me, I think part of the secret was of some success was that we weren't focused on Tokyo. We were focused on, you know, beyond Tokyo. Um, and it's a, it's a coaching strategy I use quite often as far as you don't always have to aim at the bullseye to hit the bullseye. Uh, you can aim a little bit off and, and, and the circumstance will still allow you to hit the target without just narrowing your focus and, and hitting it. And I call it, you know, Having lived in the US, we call it the shotgun approach uh, in the sense that you could hit a lot of things and, and one of those may be the target. But if you only aim at the target and you put all that focus, then you may not, you, know, you may miss it. And so it has impacted him differently, although, um, and it's impacted him in a, in a positive way in reality because now, you know, if Tokyo goes ahead in 2021, it's even closer to what was our you know, real goal, which was 2024. So it, it actually suits Tyler, but it's hard to kind of, even sound opportunistic from what is a you know a pretty ordinary situation. So, you know, life life deals you these cards. Sometimes things happen and you know you have no control of, and they work in your favour. And sometimes they don't work in your favour. So, one of the things I have done is we have worked hard to you know with Tyler and with all the athletes 
to find a way to say how do we turn this to our advantage or how do we certainly mitigate the the facts that it may be a disadvantage because I think again like when you use you know depending on how you view it it's very easy to turn something into a negative or or go down the dark hole of like oh this isn't you know this isn't good for me and you know I've been dealt a rough you know hand here and it's not fair and that sort of stuff we've worked very hard to to kind of just avoid that piece and, and, and say this is where it provides an opportunity. And for Tyler, an extra year is an extra year. Um, he will be better in a year. Um, we've gone through a training regime this year, which was obviously targeted around the Olympic Games. Um, and we have shifted the training focus in 2020 just to take out any risk because, the you know, the, the risk-reward balance has obviously shifted. Um, but in this testing in the next two weeks and refreshingly, I mean, you know, Tyler's comments the last the last five or six days as we've kind of rested and got ready for this performance on demand period and um, he's like wow I'm actually I think I'm going as well as I was before the test event maybe even better um, and we haven't gone out of our way to chase that we've, we've kind of done it in a safe manner and and I'm really to see what we get the next couple of weeks and so what I'm hoping to see is that just through 12 months without doing it you know without the specifics of the training just 12 months more maturation is Tyler better um, knowing that 12 more months he, should, he could be even better. Whereas you'll have some people who competed in the test event who were probably close to their best, who were already on the downward, you know, if you think of it as a bell curve, we're on the downward trend for 2020. And I would, and you think, wow, I'd hate to be in their shoes. They're, like, they're, they're one year further away from their peak, whereas Tyler's one year closer. And so balancing that out across the group is, is, is really important because obviously for some people, if you have that conversation, it's, it's clear that they don't fall into that conversation. Yeah. Um, so the individual nature of these conversations is really important. Um, but yeah, in Tyler's case, um, you know, it's disappointing because I think that he, you know, he had a legitimate claim to uh, go into Tokyo this year as a, as a as medal potential. Um, but he's probably even got more claim in 2021. Um, you know, but there's a lot of you know there's a lot of coaching and a lot of things got to go on between now and then to make sure that happens. Yeah, that's that's a great attitude and a really good way to look at it. Um, why I really um, extended out to you, Jono, um, was I, I listened to you talk on um, uh, that triathlon show, another podcast, and um, yeah, I was I really enjoyed listening to hear, hear um, your wisdom um, about your coaching career and your experience and. Um, you started off the show by talking about your coaching philosophy and you talked about, um, yeah, the lowest effective dose, uh, and, and, and things like, um, I heard you talk on the Brad beer podcast, uh, about systems as well, because I think at the time you were, you were, um, looking into your MBA and, um, uh, you're, you're doing a bit of study on systems. So yeah, do you mind, um, chatting to us about like what your coaching philosophy is yeah no that's look that's a good thing and it's i really enjoy doing this stuff because every time i get to for me it's like speaking aloud and hearing my own voice and allows me to reflect on it and obviously when i see people's response i get feedback because i think one of the things that's really important and you use the word wisdom and for me wisdom pertains to experience not necessarily knowledge and so i'll say to people like, i'm not the smartest guy like my knowledge is limited but I have, been around, I have been around a while and I have experienced a lot of things and I think that does make me wise. And obviously, as a coach, my aim is to be wise and knowledgeable. And so um, I think that's a really good thing to start on there. I mean, 
Um, the systems approach and the minimum dose actually go together. They, I feel they can't work independent of each other. And so as a philosophy, my philosophy really, and I've worked on this through time trying to, you know, you, you, you try to put things into words to articulate it clearly so you can create that image in people's minds. But my, my vision, you know, if you use a business term, my vision is to have athletes reach their absolute potential um, in, a, in a way that creates longevity uh, without a significant cost to their lives around sport. And so what my mechanism for doing that is to take this approach of, well, how little, how precise can I be on the dosage of training so that I give them the, the right amount with the aim to be the least amount of training to achieve the maximum outcome? And the purpose of that is obviously to give them this life around what they do. Um, so it's an efficiency conversation. It's the, you know, why would you pay more for something uh, if you could get it, you know, at, 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 at a certain price? And most people aspire to pay less for something. <laughs> I don't know any. I don't know any people. Yet when you look at sports people, and I have this conversation. And I use this analogy quite often. I'll say to athletes, so when you go to the store and something's ten dollars, do you uh, do you head across twelve dollars? And they're like, what? I go, would you pay more than what it's worth? No. I said, so why do you why do we go down the pathway of doing more training than necessary? There's this notion of well, if I do it more, it'll cover my base. So that doesn't apply in finance. You don't go, well, if I pay twelve dollars, I'm gonna get more. You're gonna go, well, can I get it for eight dollars? And so it's interesting having those conversations, but that underlies my philosophy. And it's it's a it's this junction or this sweet spot which is not about compromising performance, um, but it's about balancing the maximum performance that they can achieve that they're physically capable of. Um, with a a notion of well-being and a, and a holistic approach that they have a life and they can compete for a longer period of time and they can be as successful as they have the potential to be, but it's not this significant cost to um, to who they are as people and their you know their social development, their professional development, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess to do that, what I've applied is a systems approach, and um, I'm a very visual person, so the systems approach for me is it's very simple in a graphical manner or, or a visual manner to put up on a board and, and create something where you're always saying everything feeds back, everything has a reason, everything is strategic in nature, so there's a there's a process, a very specific process. Most of my process, I try to, they're, uh, they're, you know, they're what I call polystrategic, so I'm trying to do that, you know, in, in Australian terms, you know, I'm trying to kill two birds with one stone. Yeah. Very simple. So, like, there's a lot of work goes into that, and if I can put that up and show where every decision or every strategic direction actually feeds back into not only achieving something in the short term but achieving something for the long term, um, I found that enables me then to lessen the training dosage to get the outcome. And those, and in a system, the system's about the process, so it's it's, it's almost a schematic, so it shows a flow of direction. But the main main for me, the most important thing in the system is the people. And so, uh, you know, I, I, my private uh, business is called the Multisport Brain, and the whole Multisport Brain concept is about this learning, uh, thinking type organism. Um, and I know for a fact that we touched it, like my knowledge isn't high enough to be that one person. So the team that I have around me to provide the knowledge and then deliver the services is, is quite significant. So. Can we, you know, my question is, I always ask questions rather than make statements. Like, I'm always asking myself questions. Can we do less training? And if we do less training, what are the risks of not getting performance? And what can I do, what can I add to that system that isn't more training? Can I add a person? Can I add uh, specific knowledge? 
Can I add a location? Can I add something to the system which impacts on performance but has no physical cost to it for the athlete? And so systems for me are around, like, you know, the amount of run volume we do is has a direct relationship to our access to uh, physio and soft tissue therapy. Um, I'm not one of these people who says, you know, we were running X amount of uh, kilometres a week and we had X amount of treatment. Um, I'm going to continue to run the same amount of kilometres, but I'm going to remove all the treatment because, for me, you're asking for trouble. And so all these things are interlinked with the aim that, um, yeah, we can have... I can the, the footprint of the athlete's sporting career is only a percentage of their lives. It's not 100% of their entire lives. It's 100% of their professional focus, but it's not 100% of their lives. They have time to be... Uh, you know, young men and women and, you know, prepare for them, you know, prepare for, you know, lead as normal lives as they possibly can. And yes. so that, that kind of, you know, that speaks a little bit to the vision and it speaks a little bit to the philosophies and, and even some of the mechanisms um, that I use. And, and I'm learning it all the time as I go. It's not a, it's not a recipe and it's not a formula. Yeah. Um, it, you know, I use that analogy that everyone does. You know, if, if you gave me the same ingredients and a cookbook, um, could I produce a meal like a Michelin chef? Heck no. And so, for me, this is very individual. It's very personal, and um, and it's a it's, it's indicative of, of an approach others could take. But those others would have to apply their individual situation and circumstance to it. And so, you know, I've had people who are like, "Oh, so if I just follow what you you do," and I said, "If you just follow what I do, you'll fail." Um, and and often and the point is as well is that this isn't setting stone. Like even, you know, my philosophies haven't necessarily changed since um, February or March this year. Um, but there's some stuff I'm doing that has changed. And, and, and again, as a coach, you've got to find that balance of uh, sticking to the same thing and hoping, you know, always for a different outcome or being flexible to change, and, but then not being seen as, uh, as kind of reactive or flippant and changing all the time. So I think the key thing there is that uh, this process as a coach is just, it's continual learning. Um, and, and for me, that's what keeps it exciting. And that's what I think. And I think the athletes appreciate that, um, that I'm as invested in in being better at what I do as 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 much as they're invested in being better at what they do. Yep, yep. Now that's that's a, a great answer. Um, I love listening to it. Um, the the other um, aspect that I really picked up on from um, both the podcasts I listened to you talk was you really often refer to the 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 athlete as a whole and and their health and their happiness. Uh, when it comes to making sure that they perform well on the day. Um, uh, and I thought that was a, a, a really good point to probably chat about because um, I think sometimes as coaches and athletes, we can just get carried about the tra- carried away about the training. And um, uh, yeah, so yeah, do you mind opening up on that? Yeah, look, it's, it's an approach and it's probably an approach that has been formed because I was an athlete and I think that I made, I made some pretty big mistakes as an athlete. Um, I felt, and it was, I was conditioned this way and it was a train of thought that, you know, there was this all or nothing. If you weren't absolutely all in, you couldn't be successful. Um, and I probably, you know, I had a certain amount of ability, but I was certainly not the best athlete in the world. And so with that train of thought and my own insecurities about my abilities, I had this approach was like, I've got to be all or nothing. I can't lead a normal life. I can't go to the cinema, I can't do all these other things. And there's a period in that time as an athlete where I gave up everything and I actually regret it because I actually don't believe that it made a difference to my performance other than it may have had a negative impact on my performance. 
I found that once that I was able to flick that switch, when, when I needed to be on, I was on. But when I didn't need to be on, I was off and I was leading a normal life and trying to develop as a, you know, as a person within society. Um, and so there's still that notion, there's still this train of thought by certain coaches and certain organisations and there's still the insecurities of the athletes that it has to be all or nothing. And, and my, my case is just an example where I can say to them, well, I don't believe that's the case. Um, I, I understand where you've come from because I fell into the same trap. So I can use empathy to say, I, I can put myself in your shoes and I see it. Um, but my experience is you don't have to. Um, and I'm a big advocate for that to the point where if I had an athlete came to me and said, look, you know, thanks for that coach. That's a real heads up. And, you know, I really appreciate that you're thinking about me outside of sport, but I want to do this 100% and I don't want to pursue it another way. I'd have a question ethically in my mind whether I would coach that person because I would say, like, from a coaching perspective, I go, wow, this is going to be easy. And you could jump into all those things like, that. Oh, this is great for a coach. But it doesn't sit comfortably with me because I feel we have a responsibility that's much more than just coaching individual sport. We have this responsibility to setting up these young men and women for their sporting aspirations without the compromise to the life after sport or the life during sport. And that may be, you know, and that may limit... Uh, that may limit our success or it may limit the athletes I work with. But as you know, the athletes, there's, there's lots of coaches for athletes to choose for, you know, choose from if they don't feel that that philosophy suits them or suits their needs. But um, I really try to, you know, I really try to just have that conversation with the athletes that, you know, insecurity is quite normal um, and it's not a bad thing unless it impacts you on your behaviour. And so you can be insecure um, and insecurity for me should be a driver behind motivation. If you're insecure about something, don't fret about it. Do something about it. Um, but if it leads to that fretting and that um, you know and, and negative behaviour, then it's a, you know it's it's something that uh, isn't helpful. And so having been able to have those open conversations with athletes and say, you know, you, you're probably a little bit insecure. Um, hey, that's okay. I, I remember how insecure I was as an athlete. You can make a connection, and then obviously that connection leads to trust, and then that trust can lead to following the process and. And it's a foot in the door. I think once as a coach you, you deliver these philosophies, especially if they're different to others, until you get performances, people are sceptics. But once you get a performance and people are like, wow, this is happening. I, I have a normal life. I have a, you know, a partner. I get to spend time with my parents. I have, you know, I have as much as a, as a normal social life as can be expected given my profession um, and I'm still doing well. It's kind of, the, for me, it's kind of the holy grail of what, you know, what you should be looking for. And so that's just the way I... I approach it and uh, and I'm willing not to coach people or I'm willing not to potentially be successful um, because if, you know, I would be somewhat ashamed if we were successful because, you know, an athlete had only committed to sport and I look at their social and their personal development has been impacted, yeah, I'd be ashamed. Like, that success would be pretty hollow for me. Um, so, I'm, I mean, I tell people I'm greedy. I want the athletes to be successful and I want them to be functioning human beings within our global society um, without any compromise. Um, and it's a high bar, uh, but, but I'd like to think we're doing it. And I'd, I'd like to think we're, we're taking out small steps to achieving it. And from that, we're showing others it can be done. So it's, like I said, it's, it's quite rewarding, but it's, yeah, it takes a lot of work behind the scenes. And, uh, but again, like this is, these guys have one career, they have one opportunity. And, you know, when I went into coaching, I was adamant that I was going to take that, you know, take that responsibility seriously. What does a typical day in the life of John O'Hall look like uh, as a professional coach? 
Look, my days, uh, it's pretty It's pretty routine. There's, there's this notion of preparation. Um, and so I'm always preparing for the next session. And so, you know, the time it takes, I don't do the sessions, obviously, but I do the, you know, the, the stuff below the surface, so to speak. So I spend a lot of time on preparing the sessions. And so everything for me is this repeat fashion of uh, preparing, uh, implementing the session, analysis and analysing the session, um, looking at intervention points, do I need to change something? And then it's almost like go again. And so it's a cycle. Um, it's a constant cycle of, of you know, preparation, uh, execution, analysis, and then back onto the preparation phase. And uh, I'm pretty, I mean, I've worked out over time that obviously, you know, I'm a product of my environment. I was conditioned that way as an athlete um, in the simplicity of creating the process and making it simple. And, and what I try to do is obviously noticing to the athletes, I try to make sure that that footprint that it takes me as a coach uh, incurs the least amount in my, in my personal life. Um, you know, in my life has been a, a, a husband and in my life has been a father and in my life has been a friend and, and in my life is playing some sort of role in society. And, um, it's a tough balance, but again, like I've got to walk the talk. If I'm asking, if I'm delivering that for my athletes and talking about it as an as for my athletes, I've got to, you know, I've got to walk the talk as a coach as well. And so again, I've seen coaches who go down the same pathway as, you know, I'm going to go all in, I'm going to make these incredible sacrifices to achieve an outcome. Um, and I've seen coaches who get at the other end and they achieve the outcome only to realise that it, you know, didn't mean as much as they thought it would. It didn't define them. And in the meantime, they've they've lost a lot of things. They've either lost friends or they've lost relationships or they've lost contact with with society. And um, for me, that's that's the pro- I don't see it as a necessary price to pay. And so, you know, my days are pretty pretty simple. They're, they're quite routine. That's been the challenge for me in this period is, you know, how I've maintained my own routines and my own schedule and my own structure. Um, and in reality, the good thing for me has been by distance, I've had to do even more preparation, not less preparation. I've had to do more analysis, not more analysis. The actual execution phase, I'm not physically present, which is incredibly challenging as a coach. Um, but it's actually kept me through this process. And like I said, as I said earlier, it's, it's helped me become a better coach. And I'd, I'd like to think it's helping my athletes become better athletes in, in my application. So it's still a, it's, it's, I was going to say it's mundane. It's, it's exciting if you're into coaching. For others, it certainly would be, you know, it would be their thing. Like it is, it's, it's, it can be quite one dimensional and, 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 and it's, and relatively speaking, the time that you do balance with your family and friends and what is never what, you would ideally do it's it's a compromise to some point uh, but as a coach you go into that with your eyes open and so you know i'm very comfortable with the decisions i've made and and i'm very comfortable with my lifestyle and i think i've got i've got a, the balance that works for me although it's, if you applied my balance to you know what other people do it would look incredibly off balance and so <laughs> uh, you know that's that is kind of the life as a professional coach and when i you know and there are stages where i go through this like oh, you know is this worth it and what am i doing um as a triathlon coach, my life is much less complicated than, um, you know, a professional coach in a major football league and, and that sort of thing. I mean, I look at, you know, cases in Australia and, and for those who are in Australia and, and you know, and, and those who aren't, if you just look into the case now with uh, Coach Anthony Seabold in the, in the Brisbane Broncos and you say, you know, this is a guy who is an awarded coach who things aren't going well. I know the amount of time those guys put into coaching, which is more than the actual... Even though we train three disciplines, their time leaving home and getting back home is significantly more than mine. And then I look at the scrutiny, the media, the, the you know, all the things that go on with it, and I'm yeah. like, oh, triathlon coaching's pretty good. Like, I don't make the money those guys do, but 
I feel I'm in a sweet spot. I'm doing something I love. Uh, I feel I'm compensated at a level which doesn't challenge my motivation. Um, it still challenges me as a coach. I've still got a lot of work to do, but yeah, when it gets a little bit tough, I just look around at those guys and I'm like, I've got it pretty good. <laughs> I, re- I read um, this quote of yours from February 2017 in an article by Tori Teller. I said, I'm not in love with triathlon. I think that helps me coach triathlon. Do you mind um, expanding on that? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good one. It actually came up in a conversation last night as well, um, you know, three years later. Yeah, I'm, I'm not in love with triathlon. I'm not a fan. Um, I think there's always a risk in, in any kind of fandom. Um, and so, you know, triathlon isn't the thing that's at the forefront of my mind when I'm not doing it as my occupation. Um, it's not something I do in my spare time. It's not my hobby. I don't sit down at the end of the night and go, oh, what are we going to watch tonight? Let's watch a triathlon. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, it's, it's just the way I feel about it. Um, and people question me, like, well, how do you coach if you don't have, uh, if you're not a fan of it? And I said, I'm passionate about what I do and I'm passionate about the people I work for. And I believe, for me personally, and it's probably the same for everyone, that point of separation where I'm not a fan, I think helps me. Um, because I think it gives me clarity on what I'm doing um, and it helps me maintain my energy because I think, you know, I'm a fan of other things in life and I know that as a fan I, I kind of get a little bit emotional and I know it impacts on my decision. It doesn't give me the clarity. I, now, I can be like a, you know, a little teenage girl when I get excited about things I'm a, you know, I'm a fan of <laughs> and I think, God, you know, if I was a fan of triathlon, I'd be a terrible coach. Yeah. Um, and so, like, yeah, the, the conversation came up last night. I was sent through the, the times of the uh, of the WTS, the World Triathlon Series event happening in Hamburg, and and from uh, a friend who works in the media with ITU, and I was like, yeah, you know, I've never really sat and watched a race. And she was blown away. She said, what, what do you mean? I said, yeah, it's, it's not something I do in my spare time. <laughs> because if I did it in my spare time, it would be 24-7. And, and again, you, you tie that back to my philosophies. I don't think 24-7 of anything is, is helpful. So... Yeah, I'm not in love with triathlon um, as a sport. I'm in love with the process. I'm in love with the challenges. Um, I'm a huge advocate for supporting others in their aspirations. So I don't have to be in love with some something personally to support someone who is in love with triathlon. Um, and like I said, for me, I've always seen it as a strength, not a not a weakness. And it is maybe an atypical way, you know, working with it. Um, but in reality, like I've you know. I've always been involved in sport, um, yet that's I've always seen it as a profession. Like it's 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 what I do. It's not who I am. Um, you know, and there'll be there'll be there will become a time when, and it's probably two things will happen. I'll either become irrelevant, where what I do know and my impact on triathlon becomes irrelevant, where people don't want to coach me. In which case, you know, I and I don't look forward to that day of being irrelevant. But there is a point of me where I look forward to saying, you know what, at some stage sport won't be part of my life and it'll probably be a better representation of who I am and this is despite sport has probably been 90% of my life to date I've chosen that pathway and I've committed to it um, but it could easily have gone another direction 30 years ago I could have easily you know if I wasn't you know, and it's easy to say this if I wasn't you know who I was as an athlete or competed as an athlete got into coaching um, I wouldn't be half in I wouldn't be a sporting fan or I wouldn't be sport wouldn't be a big part of my of my life there would be some other something else around the arts or something like that, which is probably my, my true passion. And, and I think that's part of it as well. Like I'd probably take an artistic view to what I do from a coach as a coach as well. So yeah, it's not a, I mean, it's not a super answer and it's, 
but it does because it's not. I don't think there's a black and white approach to anything. So, but it certainly it, it's certainly how I think and how I believe, and I do certainly think it's it's part of it's clearly part of how I work, and I would like to think it's clearly part of why I've been involved in the sport. I was going to say successful, but I don't think it's for me to determine whether I'm successful. I think it's for you know others. But you know, when I look at the fact that I've been employed with you know, national federations for 15 years and I've been uh, recruited by national federations, I'm obviously doing something okay. Yeah. Um, and so it obviously points to what I'm doing, you know, is working to a degree. But you know, I certainly don't settle that what I'm doing is is the maximum I can achieve as a coach. Well, I think I think that answer makes heaps of sense because I see it day in day out as a as a physio dealing with a lot of runners and. Often, often they're getting injured because they're too emotionally invested in their decisions, and um, yeah, I think you know, you know, being able to um, detach yourself away from you know that emotional side of it um, means that you're going to be able to be better equipped, equipped to make those harder decisions. Um, I've also heard you answer like, "What makes a good coach?" and and yeah, I thought your answer for that's quite quite good um uh do you mind sort of expanding on what makes a good coach look i'd almost have to say you'd have to remind me what i've said because yeah. that that that's an evolving evolving process for me i mean and the reality is that what's relevant today is, is probably the key thing i think as i've gone through this and i've looked at you know what makes a good coach i come at it from a variety of angles obviously you know i can't dismiss my experiences and as an athlete um, you know, my experience as an athlete and working with a variety of coaches has, has helped me pick the good from the bad as far as, you know, what are the things that worked and what are the things that didn't work um, and how do I implement that into my coaching? It's interesting. Look, coaching is, has been, I think, founded on knowledge and I'm getting further and further away from the knowledge part as being a, a pillar um, from, from the start. I think that the knowledge piece can always be taught um, but I think there's some other things that that um, that are really critical for you to be uh, effective as a coach. Um, for me, it's about commitment. I mean, I don't think I don't think I'm the smartest coach out there, um, but I think I'm one of the most committed. Um, I think I'm willing to put in time that others aren't willing to put in. I'm 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 all in to what I do, and I think there's a, a, a component of that. You can. You can have a little bit less knowledge. You can have a little bit less less experience um, if you're all in. Um, if you're not all in, I think there's a piece that says, irrespective of your knowledge and your experience, you're not going to have the impact on the athletes over a long period of time. And so, I'm just willing to do uh, to go all in um, to make that work. Um, and then the rear end is support that with the knowledge, underpin it with knowledge. And and the big thing for me in the systems approach in the team is that is saying is acknowledging that. Now, I have a limitation, and if I don't know something, I need to surround myself with people who do. And it's that concept of, you know, uh, if you think you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Um, I'm clearly, in my team, the least intelligent person in the room, and I'm proud of it. <laughs> yeah. I'm proud of it because I've surrounded myself. Now, my job is then, and I talk about this notion of being the conductor, I'm just the conductor of this, of this what I call real knowledge. Um, and, yep. and I bring it together to make it, in, you know, effective as a as a triathlon coach. And um, so when I'm looking at and I'm speaking to coaches all the time, you know, you're like, "What does it take? What does it take?" And I'm like, "It takes commitment. Like that's the first thing. If you don't have that commitment uh, to the athletes, and you don't realise it's about them, it's not about you. 
um, then the knowledge and all the other all the other intricate pieces are irrelevant. And so, for me, that's still the, the you know, it, it it's probably crystallised more in my mind that you know, for me currently, that's where I see coaching, and that and that's the message I share with coaches when I'm asked, you know, what does it take? And I'm like, well, it takes, and it's interesting because people are almost uh, underwhelmed by that. They're like, really? Like, what about this? And what about that? And I'm like, yeah, you know, they will become factors later on. But without this factor, those things are irrelevant, and so I still, I still believe that's the case. Yeah, yeah, and I've got got here in your response as well. Make better athletes. Uh, Mick saying yes or no, challenge but support. Provide answers some days, but questions most days. Um, and yeah, I thought I thought that were really really good um, responses, um, particularly the um, you know provide answers some days, questions most days, because um, I suppose it shows that. Um, I mean that ability that you know every every athlete's different and every situation's different and um, you're not always going to know the answers, but um, you sort of work your way through it with everyone. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've got this. I mean, I think we all form these uh, these concepts and notions in our heads, and and I've developed this pretty passionate view on uh, you know the term expert. Um, you know. And it's a word that's thrown around quite often. And, and, but I've come to this thing like, for me, an expert is someone who asks more questions than makes more statements. Yeah. When you're given the tag is expert, it's almost a free range just to make statements. But for me, in my opinion, what an expert does really well is they pose questions uh, and, they, and they look to understand. And that inevitably, they may provide a statement or a solution but they're not in this position where they've been given this tag as expert and that gives them the right to be like, this is it. This is the only way you can do it. Um, and so I've kind of gravitated towards this uh, notion again is um, with experts is that it's still about asking questions. Everything's about asking questions, seeking to understand, knowing that at some stage you're going to have to make a decision or make a statement. But, uh, you know, because people are like, oh, you know, you see yourself as an expert coach. And I'm like, well, depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about someone who's going to walk in the room and tell everyone how it's done, no. And is by posing, walking to a room and asking questions, does that mean that people don't think I'm an expert? Well, it probably does. People go, oh, he's not an expert. <laughs> he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's asked all these questions. But for me, that's what experts do really, really well, is they, are, they go in with a wealth of knowledge and experience, but a willingness to ask questions as opposed to make blanket statements. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what I aspire to do. I aspire to um, have the most amount of knowledge and have the most amount of experience I can, um, but that doesn't impact on my process. Still be open enough to go, well, until I gather more information, um, it would be irresponsible of me to come out and just apply my expert lens on, on a certain situation. And, um, and that's what I look for when I look for you know, leadership or mentors or you know, other coaches or people who, there's no doubt, they... they probably earned the right to start off with a lot of statements um, but they resist that temptation to I guess exercise their expertise uh, you know the expertise is something that you can't say I'm an expert you can only be told you're an expert uh, yeah. if you understand what I'm saying and, yeah and that's the same way I have the same approach for success like it's very difficult to say I'm a successful coach um, I think it's a you know it's a, you know, there's a there's a part of that that I'm like no only other people can say if you're successful and in reality in triathlon the athletes are successful not the coach yeah you know, yeah, people say this, you know, oh, you had success in Tokyo, and I'm like, last year, I'm like, no, no, Tyler had success. Yeah. I was the coach, and if you if you deem that as successful, then so be it. But like, I certainly wouldn't say I'm a successful coach. I've had successful athletes, and and for me, that really under you know, having been an athlete, 
one of the biggest challenges for me was working with a coach where it was clear it wasn't about me, it was about them. And so I've always tried to make sure that it's always about the athlete. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm the first person to arrive at a race, but I'm also the first person to leave if an athlete's successful. Like the job's done. It's about them. Let them take the, you know, the, the, the shine and the accolades and the spotlight. And so, um, yeah, all those things tie in together, I guess, in, uh, in, in, into my philosophy, but more importantly, my actions. Like I said, again, philosophies and practices and words, it's just that it's you know, actions, actions are the things that count. Yeah, yeah. Um, I listened um, also to the podcast and, and remember you saying that you're known amongst your athletes and notorious for giving them their sessions um, uh, on the day and, and holding back yep. details um, because you, you, you're um, constantly ad- adapting and adjusting the, uh, the program according to, um, yeah, I suppose how they've gone on, in the session the day before. Um, how important is flexibility and structure in training? And when you're changing your training, what metrics are you sort of looking at to, uh, I know it's complicated with a multi-sport, but what metrics are you sort of looking at subjectively and objectively to, to make those decisions? That's a great question. I mean, one thing, like listening to this and listening to questions in my answers, I mean, there's these common themes of finding a sweet spot or you know, a point of collision where, um, where it works and you know, finding the balance of giving the athletes enough certainties so they can prepare, but having the flexibility to be to change what you want to do because what you plan to do wasn't effective. And so there's this whole notion of, you know, uh, you know people go, you just, you just got to stick with it. I'm like, well, if I'm going the wrong direction, why would I stick to going the wrong direction? I'd like the ability to put my hand up and go, whoop, sorry, wrong direction. I want to back out and change direction. And so especially with coaching, I mean, and, and the more sessions you do and triathlon being multidisciplined, there's more chances to get it right, but there's more chances to get it wrong, and there's there's more flux, there's more there's more change going on, and so if you're honest about that, then you need to create a degree of margin to accommodate that change. And so the metrics thing is really interesting because what I'm looking for, in a nutshell, is I'm looking to see something that changes the intervention I wanted to create. So for me, coaching is all about intervention. It's all about an action and intervening in something to make something happen, um, and so. When I write a program, I've got the interventions clear in mind, um, but something could happen during the process that means that that intervention I had in mind is no longer relevant. Um, the metrics I use to make those decisions are, there's a lot of them. Um, I tell you what, there's nothing better than basic observation. I mean, that's been the challenge now, using your own eyes to see someone. And you learn this, I think this comes from the wisdom part of coaching. You learn to interpret what you see in a certain way. Um, but we certainly work hard behind the scenes to back that with some, you know, what people call evidence-based, some facts, and whether whatever metric that may be, it may be. And the metrics for me are more the subjective ones, you know, like sleep quality. Now, there's devices you can measure sleep quality, and so there are some things that go another level, but, you know, it's quite subjective. But it could be the critical thing in changing what I do. And so, you know, I look at all the things that are around behaviour, mood, sleep quality, uh, appetite, um, anxiety, all those things. And then I look at some base, you know, the, the typical mod, you know, models, you know, resting heart rate, et cetera, et cetera. There's some measurables and there's some non-measurables. Um, the challenge as a coach this, that right now is there's so much available to you that you run the risk of just being overwhelmed yeah. with information and not making a decision. You've still got to make a decision. So I just try and find the balance um, of assessing the athletes uh, and then determining is what I plan to do the right thing or do I need to tweak it or do I need to change it? 
Um, and it takes a bit of educating the athletes. At the end of the day, I ask you, I say, what's your gold standard? We would love all the programs with every detail 12 months in advance. And I go, okay, so how do we come back to a compromise? I'd like to give you no programs with no detail um, ever. <laughs> and so how do you find a spot in the middle? Um, and that's not because I don't want to do it. It's because I, you know, I've got a question. So how do we find a spot in the middle? What's the minimum level of information they need to turn up to sessions ready to go? without it being the exact detail of what we want to do. And, and the challenge, and, and then teaching athletes, like, I'll give you the detail, but you've got to be understand this is this is a draft. I, I have, I want to maintain the prerogative to change it, but it's not changed for the sake of it. And so it's a real balancing act. And some athletes don't respond well to it or struggle with it initially because it's so different to what they've gone. But again, I think it's one of the components that, uh, leads to the athletes achieving success. And like I said, there's nothing like success, achieving a successful outcome to get buy-in. So the initial phase is in trust and then it's later supported by buy-in because it's been demonstrated. So, I mean, I, obviously I work hard to gain the trust. And and when you've had athletes, you know, achieving some success, then it's obviously easy to get trust. But a lot of athletes, rightly so, are suspicious and it takes, you know, a lot to convince them. And uh, and that's all part of, that's all part of the game. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, it's only recently that I've been adopting it with um, some of the junior boys that I coach down here on the peninsula with running. Um, but I've got them to fill out just um, a yeah, subjective um, questionnaire on yeah, stress levels, happiness, sleep. Um, uh, and there's about seven, seven sort of categories that we're monitoring. And um, it's actually been quite useful because they're only young boys and um, trying to teach them the importance of that load on their body when it comes to training and and making and and the fact that i've given them a month's worth of training in advance that there's going to be times where you know i can't predict in four weeks time what you're going to do and and that we need to have the flexibility to change it um yeah um so like in terms of like when you are monitoring um those subjective measures is that um, just a phone call, or is that especially in this current oh, climate? Yeah. No, I mean we use we use a variety of platforms um, yep. that are online, which facilitate that that piece. And so, um, for me, when I'm with them face to face, and again, this has been a challenge. When I'm with them face to face, the face to face is the final piece when I make a decision. But every morning before I see them face to face, I actually read the metrics that they've put into Training Peaks or today's plan or whatever whatever platform we're using. Um, so that's just about the facilitation and, and the ease of access. Um, but the final word is always the conversation or, or and, and the conversation may not need to happen because everything I've, I've been looking for and everything points to that everything's okay, but I'm still observing. Like, you know, I think that's the thing you learn as a, as a coach and uh, and I'm probably a bit of a closet scientist, but like <laughs> everything's about observation. You know, like you, you observe and you try things and you observe things and then you, you make decisions based on your observations. And so the metrics and the formal notion, notion of the metrics and the way and the platforms we use to um, do them actually make it doable. Like it actually, I couldn't, using these online platforms allows me to do more, not less, which is what they're designed to do. They're about efficiency. Um, so it allows me to have, you know, I can't ask, I've got 10 athletes on pool deck and I've got 15 to 20 metrics, it's a lot of questions to ask before you get into a session. And so what it allows me to do is to start the session with that information on hand um, and then work out who I need to have a conversation with 
um, from the start, but then arriving on pool deck and going, wow, everything looked good in that metrics, but I'm just looking at that person's body language. I'm going to need, I'm just going to ask them, is everything okay? Um, look, and you come across stuff as, you know, you come across stuff as a coach where you're like, clearly like, well, this athlete isn't prepared what I'm, you know, for what I wanted to give them and for a legitimate reason. Um, and I'd be crazy just to, you know, hope to give them the same workout and achieve the outcome I want to do when it's never going to happen. Like, I'd actually be setting them to fail as opposed to succeed. So, um, again, everyone has their own systems and their own process. And it, and for me, again, it is this combination of utilising these ready-made and quite robust platforms that allow you to gather information quickly and efficiently um, in conjunction with, you know, the human interaction and the yeah. human observation and... Uh, and like I said, I, and I really enjoy that process because I'd like to think that I'm getting it right much. And I'm in, not only am I getting it right, I'm, in, I'm just increasing the chances of getting it right significantly. Yeah, no, fantastic. The next one was, um, I know Craig Mottram at the end of his career, um, yeah, um, did sort of uh, think about going into triathlon um, and, and I know he contacted you and... and um, I, I'm not sure how that went, but um, yeah, how, how did that go? Um, uh, look, that's a, that's a great story. It gives people an insight and, and maybe relevant to other people who are listening. But um, I mean, Craig, long story short, Craig had come from triathlon. I mean, he was Australian um, schools triathlon champion. So he, he'd come through triathlon. Um, he'd been injured. Um, I had a really, and I'd become personally acquainted with Craig and we'd formed this, we'd formed this friendship uh, not working together and it, and it was just out of, I think, a mutual respect um, and Craig is a fan um, of sport and he has always been a supporter of other athletes and so he's interesting athletes I work with but I mean, I'd had a hard conversation with him where I was like, look mate, you'd, you're probably going to go to another Olympics in track and field, you don't have a medal, I reckon you could go to Olympics and get a medal, like what do you want to do? And he had been injured and um, and he, and he was struggling at the time. And, and I just pitched to him that I believe that he could be successful in triathlon. And, and the belief of a coach is obviously, you know, it, that's another conversation, but it's a significant part. Had he been uninjured, I don't think I would have convinced him to try triathlon. Um, but given he was injured, it was the perfect time to do so. And I pitched it to him in a way of like, look, you're going to allocate some time here. Ideally, what you come out of at the end, you come out with two points. You come out at the end going, well, I can continue running, I can continue what I'm doing, but in the meantime, I've created this option in triathlon. Um, so we started that process, and um, and it was really interesting because it became apparent to me really quickly that, you know, he did have the potential to deliver on, um, on what I thought he could do in triathlon. Um, we didn't get the support I thought we would get from the National Federation, uh, which surprised me because it wasn't like we had other men at the time who were medal potential. So, like, I saw Craig as a bit of a... You know, no risk, uh, nothing to lose scenario, and so that was that was a little bit frustrating. And I think it played a role in um, in his decision going forward. We struggled a little bit. Well, he struggled with the fact that with the swimming um, and the less running, he put on quite a bit of uh, muscle mass, and so he had this question mark over wool. Because I mean, my thing was like, I need you to swim and ride, but I don't want to compromise your run, and so. We were always struggling with that concept of, well, you know, how, how could I possibly run as fast as I have when I'm, you know, now carrying all this upper body muscle mass? Um, and so we had to work with that. One of the things we did find was that um, we did some lab testing and um, I think we got the highest VO2 we'd ever recorded on a run treadmill but doing this cross-training with swimming. And so I thought there was something in that. So I thought, and that underpinned this notion, my commitment to him was like, yeah, we're going to pursue triathlon, um, 
but I want to do it in a way that doesn't compromise the fact that if you do want to run, I haven't taken you away from running. Um, in the end, I mean, what Craig struggled with and what a lot of people struggle with who come into it from individual disciplines is um, the logistics of triathlon. He's like, man, this leaving home, getting ready for the pool, coming to the pool, swimming, going home, getting showered, getting changed, getting ready again, <laughs> going out on the bike, going training, coming home, getting – he goes, I just can't – I can't do it. I, I can't do it at this phase in my life, um, which I respected because – and it was one of the things I probably hadn't – put enough credence to was you know triathlon has as a sport has different demands to running and the demands physically maybe aren't that different but the demands logistically and the time back and forth etc are real and, and apparent and i think we just came to the point where it was pretty clear i'm like actually if you're not enjoying this process buddy it's we're not going to be successful like we're not going to be successful and so in the end um i don't think it was a failed experiment because craig went on to what he's fourth or fifth Olympics and, you know, ran in the semifinals of the 5K and, uh, you know, you cannot discredit any Australian who's been to that number of Olympics in a sport that has been so dominated by uh, non-Caucasian athletes. I mean, he's, you know, he's, for my mind, he's one of, you know, he's been one of the show. Yeah, following on from talking about Craig, um, uh, I suppose the differences between triathlon and run, running training, like I've started coaching, um, uh, a guy uh, down this way, uh, Lachlan Watson, and he's right into triathlon, um, but then he's decided to do a bit more running because it suits his lifestyle, being a, an apprentice labourer. And, um, yeah, already we've struggled with um, a bone stress reaction, and and I know a lot of, um, yeah, uh, runners from the triathlon background, um, like uh, Joel Tobin-White, seem to have struggled a bit with bone stress injuries as well. Um, I suppose that's one of the the pitfalls of, of suddenly doing a bit more running. But um, I also wanted to know just like what 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 do you think runners could learn from triathletes, and and what some of the the parts of say triathlon training, the good parts of triathlon training that maybe some runners could could learn from. Yeah, no, look, it's a great question, and it's a great topic, and it's one that is constantly evolving. Um, and this is only my, I mean, and I've done, a, I've put a lot of work into this personally. And so like, I guess anything I say is just been, you know, it's my interpretation and my opinion. But yeah. um, for me, it's about uh, this notion of what's the total amount of work you need to do um, from a cardiovascular perspective to be, to achieve the outcomes you want to achieve. Okay. So, um, and it's interesting because no one can answer me this or when they answer these questions, I always go, you know, well, why? You know, so like if you want to run a, you know, if you want to run a 210 marathon, you you have to be running 180 k's a week. And I'm like, okay, cool. Why? Oh, because you have to. Yeah, you know, I, I understand. But why do you have to? Like, what is it? Is that a defining thing? You're saying if you can't run 180 kilometers a week, that you couldn't run a certain time or, or whatever that, whatever that is. For me, it's about that question of why. Because the thing is, from that, I would say there is a component that is, cardiovascular conditioning and there's a huge component that's muscle musculoskeletal conditioning and specificity and neuromuscular and and all the other things that go into it now i would say and this is my this is my hypothesis this is what i come to i would say the limit of what you need to do i mean the limit of what you what you need to do is is dictated by what you actually physically can do 
Um, and so if you find someone who can do that volume and achieve that only through the single discipline of running, you're probably by default not going to change that. You're going to go, okay, well, you know, it, it ain't broke. We don't need to fix it. I would question whether you could get more out of people. So what I'm looking at is saying, well, with, with this, what is the component that is conditioning and is that conditioning generic and can I achieve the conditioning part, the non-specific musculoskeletal, neuro, neuromuscular part, can I achieve that through another discipline that is less taxing? Um, whether that be less taxing physically or less taxing psychologically or, or less taxing taxing on the musculoskeletal system, it doesn't really matter, but can I achieve, uh, and I hate to use the word fitness because it's so but can I achieve this, this aerobic conditioning piece with another discipline which decreases the risk um, that I will be injured? Um, and I mean, I had this conversation. I, I had the, the luxury and the privilege of coaching a, a coached a couple of runners now, and I coached uh, Alan Webb for a period of time, who remains the US Mile Running Champion. And I coached a, a gentleman called uh, Morgan Pearson, who's run 1334 um, for 5K and has transitioned to triathlon quite successfully over a, you know, a period of time, which I would say is quite normal. Um, and one of the questions he had was, "How do you plan for me to run 1334?" if I'm doing less running. And what I pointed out to him in that I said, you're doing more training than you've ever done. If you look at training as, a vo as volume in time, you've never done 20 to 25 hours of training in your life as a runner. Yeah. And, you've, and, and I said, and then you look at it and I say, okay, so if you're looking at the specific energy systems, um, you know, if you're looking at what has been termed you know, threshold running, how much threshold running did you do to achieve your, you know, your, your 13, sorry, your 13, 34? Um, you know, and he'd give me a number. And I say, we're doing five times that amount of work. Like, because we're doing, we, because we can, because we're doing it in a discipline that has a different musculoskeletal cost. But as far as total volume of working in certain energy systems and, and working and creating stress on those cardiovascular systems, we're actually doing more work than ever. Shouldn't you be running faster? So I play this devil's advocate again. We shouldn't now, or should we not be able to say theoretically that there's the potential to run faster? Um, and so we have this. You know, what is what is the least amount of running we can do? And not saying the least amount of running, and that's the only exercise we do. What's the least amount of running as far as the musculoskeletal and neuromuscular loads that we need to do to run fast? Um, and how do we add more conditioning or non-specific conditioning? Um, to that equation with the premise that ideally that makes us run even faster um, and what does that look like and, and how do you balance it out and, and then there's obviously the point of doing that with a healthy athlete if you're not a, a healthy athlete if, you, you know, if you're an athlete who has been plagued by injury you actually got to make a decision if the decision is well it's running or bust I'm only, I'm only going to do run training to be successful in running and you keep getting injured you're probably making a decision not to run not to have a career in running for me it's like well do the most running you can do and remain healthy and then work out what the gap is if there's a gap then fill that gap with something else and i believe there is this huge cross-pollination between um other training stimulus that still have an effect on individual disciplines um, i'm not sure how much it is and it is something that we talk about all the time is you know, and, and i don't think there's a need i mean the, the the closet scientist wants to quantify it and qualify it. And the coach <laughs> says, yeah, look, I'm, anecdotally and intuitively, it looks like it works, so that's, that's good enough for me to, to run with. But it's about filling these gaps. And so for me, it's about, you know, when the question is how much running, the answer is really, well, how much can you do? It's not a number that's fixed. It's, well, how much can you do? 
Um, and then you work out how close you are to what's needed to be. But no one's been able to give... And, and I don't know if there is an answer. Is there a number for an amount of training in total volume that, that is correlative to a performance? Or is there a number, an amount of specific intensity or specific intensities or specific movement patterns that are correlative to performances? And as confident as coaches are, um, well, this is what it takes, it's very difficult to articulate it into a scientific response, which is this is why. And so for me, that's always opened the door to have these conversations and going, well, um, let's look at other uh, avenues uh, to improve running performance that don't involve running. And uh, and then for me, the, the triathletes who go from triathlon to running because they're like, wow, you know, I'm running pretty well. If I just focused on running, I'd run faster. I'm I'm yet to, personally, I'm yet to know of a case where someone ran faster. You know, the cases of people who went away and got injured, dime a dozen. Um, and so when you look at, you know, and you look at these performances, I mean, there's, some, there's been some pretty, well, I would call them astounding performances because they're astounding in the context of, of triathlon. But, you know, you look at young Alex Yee from the UK. You know, last week he ran 7.44 for 3K. Trains as a triathlete. Really? Like, so... Yeah, like he's a triathlete. Like he's competing this weekend in Hamburg. I mean, triathlon have done a very good job in in the short term of convincing him that um, probably because of his age and because of the you know competitive nature of track and field, that as good as he is, he's probably not a gold medalist in track and field yet. But wow, in in triathlon he is. And so you've got a guy here who's actively training for triathlon who can run seven forty four for three k. Now, obviously, people will go, well, imagine what he'd run if he wasn't running. For training for triathlon and I'm like I don't think it's a given I actually maybe maybe there is a component to it and maybe if he wants to run at a competitive level there is less swimming and less cycling involved but I would argue that the swimming and cycling are a key part in keeping him healthy and a key part in him running 744 um, I mean 744 um, and he's only 19 I mean it's a legit it's a legit run in a in a difficult year for a, you know for a triathlete yeah. And then, you know, we've got other instances where, um, you know, Hayden Wild, who's a Kiwi, he just won the New Zealand cross-country championships yeah. by over a minute. Yeah. Like, he didn't beat them. He, he, he slapped them. Um, and he ran 13.21 for a 5K on the road, um, which was a virtual race they had, which, you know, was hand-measured. And then there's, you know, you can, there's a margin of error there. But, like, 13.21 is, is legit running for a guy who's also doing – between th- and he's a he's a high vo- volume guy on the bike. He probably goes between 300 and 500 kilometers a week on the bike, and he swims because his aspiration. I mean, to his credit, he's like 1331 is great, but I'm not not coming home with any medals at the Olympics at 1331, given uh, that you know 1235 was run in the last yeah. three or four weeks. So I mean, <laughs> you know, but um, they are they are fast times, and I think there is something. And I you know, and I've always been looking for research grants and getting someone who's a PhD student student to look at it intricately and give me back my hypothesis with a bit more action but it's hard to deny there's something in it like i think that's the key thing like how much is in it and how it works for individuals etc etc i don't know but there's certainly something in it and then it's would you apply it to someone who is a healthy runner i could see where the reluctance is would you would you apply it to someone who's an injured runner well my question is why wouldn't you because it may be the only avenue you have again if you take this binary approach i'm either running or i'm out of sport you're probably going to be out of sport, you know. And, and look, my personal experience, and I, I try not to dwell on this, but I mean, 
I know for myself that my limitations as a dual athlete were based on injuries. Like I could, I could only do a certain amount of, of training, and it changed over time. And there's, and there's an interesting anecdote in this. But like initially, you know, how much you know, people go, how much running you do, and I say the most I could do where I'm not injured. And initially, that was you know 20k a week, 25k a week, 30k a week. And people are like, well, how do you plan to race well on 30k a week of running? I'm like, I'm doing 800k a week, 900k a week on the bike. <laughs> like I'm actually doing, I'm doing 35 hours of training. The thing is only, um, you know, only a small portion of that is actual running. What I did do with my running was I maximised my running. So I worked really hard on the movement piece and the musculoskeletal piece to, to the majority, but I didn't do a lot of running conditioning. I didn't do any slow runs because I, that's when I was getting hurt. So I was like, if I'm fit and I can move well for as long as I can, I'll run fast. And I think I ran 14.24 and I ran 30, 30 to 10K. Um, and I never, you know, that was off between probably at that stage 35 to 40 Ks of running. Um, and people are like, well, maybe if you'd run more, you would have run faster. And I'm like, maybe if I'd run more, I just would have been, my physio bills would have been higher. <laughs> I said, you know, I look at it and I'm like, I should have invested in two things, young as an athlete. I should have invested in Telstra shares because my phone bills in the early years of living in, in Europe was astronomical. And I should have bought a physio practice because I was probably feeding my, you know, joking, you know I, I joke with physios. I'm like, oh, I'd love to come and coach in Melbourne. And they're like, oh, don't come and coach in Melbourne. There's some coaches who they provide us with our bread and butter. Like, they injure so many athletes. They're the, they're the reason we exist. And I'm like, oh, that's terrible. But like, the reality is this, is this notion around underpinning around health and well-being like can you race well injured no can you race well overtrained no can you race well uninjured and undertrained or having the training balance being different absolutely so so some of these people it's not a decision they have they really have to make i mean it's um and i'd love to uh you know someone like joel who i, I was involved with in the early days like in the back of my mind i've watched him go into running and i've watched him progress and it's been exciting and I'm like, at what stage will he get to? Will he get to the stage where he reaches his potential or will he get hurt? Um, and it's sad to see people get hurt because, I mean, we know it's, you know, it, it points to the fact they're not going to reach their potential, but it's a, it's a stressful and traumatic experience. In the back of my, all my mind, I'm always like, I've got the, got the speed dial ready to call Joe Tobin White and go, when are you, you going to take a different approach? When are you going to go back to either triathlon? Because I'll be honest, love to see. I think I don't think he ever reached his triathlon uh, potential and I think he's got more to offer um, or, or when are you going to take a different approach to your running when are you going to acknowledge that your limitations of running uh, around injury are different to those of others and that therefore there's a gap and what are you going to fill that gap with and is there something I could do as far as triathlon or multi you know, multidisciplinary approach to help him run even faster but that isn't about running more um, yeah. so there's some good little examples there and some good little anecdotes there where like I said, they're kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're a hypothesis, but there's some examples that I've tried where I've gone, hey, there's, there's something this. I'd love to know more about it. But, um, but I think it comes down to that ability for athletes and coaches to have an open mind on, um, on this notion of, you know, there's, there's a variety of ways to skin this cat. Like there's the ideal way, which everyone goes to, but it's not binary. There's, there's degrees of it. But if you're not willing to operate in the grey and exercise those degrees, you're probably making a decision that you're not going to, you know, you're not going to go forward. So um, I think it's, I think it's really cool, and that's been the premise all along. Like, as a coach, you can't make any guarantees, but my guarantees are my intentions when I, you know, when I, especially in the US, when we were just recruiting runners. I mean, the commitment is, you know, 
my commitment is I don't want you to run any slower. Like, I don't want you to go to triathlon and go, well, you can run slower. And actually, the way the sport's going, there isn't the margin to run slower. Um, you know, so you, you know, traditionally we said, you know, if we get a guy you know, like Pearson who's run 14, uh, sorry, uh, 13, 34, we've probably got 30 or 40 seconds that he can lose. And so, you know, and that'll wash off with the swim and the bike training. We're actually at the stage going, actually, no. He needs to run that fast and swim and bike for him to be competitive. And, and, and people are like, well, why? Because others are doing it. Like, it's actually the sport's moved forward. And I think the sport's moved forward because of this approach to, um, to at least attempting to say and going with that optimism of saying, I'm not prepared to compromise run performance, nor do I think you have to um, because you add swimming and, and cycling. And obviously what we don't do is we don't take a runner who's run 13.34 and do exactly the same, same run training and add swimming and cycling on top. We re what I do is, you know, I talk about, you know, trimming off the fat. We trim off some of the fat of running, which I go, you know what, that, that running piece there is conditioning. And that conditioning we can probably achieve elsewhere. And in triathlon, it's relevant to competing in those other disciplines. And in running, it might just be relevant to staying injury-free. So is that 35-minute second run or whatever it is you add, which, you go, which I kind of go 35 minutes, like you're telling me that's the critical piece, these second 35-minute runs, that's the bit that makes a difference. But that's it. Like you're telling me if you didn't do that, you couldn't run whatever you run. And, and I'm not asking you not to do it. I'm saying, why don't we do an hour and a half on the bike? Like you're actually getting, you know, because if you've got these athletes who are fixated on training, I'm like, if you're fixated on training, I'll give you more training. <laughs> How does that feel? Like you, you, you substitute your second 35, 40-minute run with a 90 minutes on the bike. Um, and, I, and I'm a firm believer without any real science behind it, which I'd love to have, uh, and I run the risk of ending up with egg in my face and being completely wrong. Um, but I'm a firm believer that it has a degree of validity and it has its place and and it's potentially the next frontier. Like, and, you know, and, and, and part of coaching is about taking risks. Like, you know, when you're doing stuff that others aren't doing, you're either a genius or an idiot. Um, and, you know, the, the jury's out. I think at the end of the day, you just go, you know, put it, you know I can try the same tried and practiced measures, you know, methods, and that's it, or I can try something different knowing that I may get it wrong. And my answer is, wow, well, it'd be pretty cool if you got it right. So, you know, look, it's a long answer, and it's um, and for me, it's one of the things that drives me is this excitement around the unknown, um, and you know, does it make a difference? But when you when you work for athletes, it's about finding ways to get them to their um, to their goals, and sometimes it's not a linear or it's not a one-dimensional approach. And and if you have coaches who look at it as being linear or one-dimensional, then that's the kind of performance you'll get. And sometimes it takes not necessarily a coach, but even a coach having someone else looking from the side and saying why don't you try this or why don't you try that? And you now in tying that together, that again kind of concretes that notion for me of having systems and people in those systems who can potentially do that. And so, um, yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I think, you know, and you hear all these different stories and especially as runners get older, you know, there's so many different ways people are training um, and there's so many different ways to achieve those outcomes. And um, and some of the reason behind the reason people do things is because they've got a cause which which may be injury and you know whether it's running singles or whether it's running doubles or whether you know um but i mean one of the things i struggle with with track and field and and what i've seen in australia is this notion of um tradition you know and i used to laugh and, and i used to laugh in a positive way i had friends but i used to challenge them and you know, we'd go to falls creek and i'd go what's on today well today we run this and we run it in this location and i go okay why well that's the way we've always done it <laughs> and i'm like oh, okay no that's a that's a 
to sound reason to do it. Okay, I'll buy it. But, and I kind of, in the back of my mind, I'm like, I wish, I'd love to have a group of uh, any kind of athletes in any sports reality. Like, like the athletes I've seen that I've really enjoyed working with are the ones who are prepared to go, look, coach, I'm not sure, but let's have a crack at it and let's see what happens. Let's try something different um, and let's see if we get better. And as long as it's trying something different where you're not getting worse, then you've got nothing to lose. And so, I mean, I, like I said, the, so most, you know, working with Craig Mottram, um, I did a stint coaching uh, Olympic rower Drew uh, Ginn as he, tra- as he spent some time in cycling when he, you know, he had back injuries and he was toying which direction he'd want to go. And I was like, maybe keeping you in rowing is about taking more rowing out of your program and adding more specific cycling. And he actually, you know, he went to another Olympics. I think he was, you know, at that stage he was looking at, and you know, we actually achieved some amazing performances on the bike. But he actually went back to he went back to rowing, and, and Craig did the same thing. And you know, working with an Alan Webb and those kind of people, um, their openness to trying something different at that stage in their career, I think, gave them extra years and gave them enjoyment. Um, and and I'd like to think, and I mean, you know, Craig's gone into coaching, um, Alan Webb's gone into coaching in the US. I, I'd like to think that that openness will actually help them become great coaches, which I've got no doubt they will be. So. Again, long answer, and, it, and it's a hotly debated thing, but uh, I think it's pretty cool and it's pretty exciting. And it just takes a little bit of courage to try things different and try things from a different approach. But it doesn't, when you don't have any other options, trying another approach isn't really courageous. It should be a bit of a, an obvious choice. Yeah, oh, no, that was, that was a fantastic answer. Like, I was enthralled listening. Um, and I think um, even just like, hearing that Craig Mottram's um, VO2 Max went. Was was uh, higher off um, cross training and triathlon training is really interesting. Do you think that's due to him being able to do a bit more volume um, of a of aerobic training, uh, or it's probably more intensity to tell you the truth? And so, like, if you look at running, and I mean, again, I don't know the numbers, but I know how the way I operate with my athletes. Like, I'm reluctant to give them more than say twelve minutes. 10 to 12 minutes of true VO2 max work on the run because the, the, the musculoskeletal and neuromuscular cost is actually quite extreme and the risk is very high. Um, yet I could give them that in the run and I could duplicate that. If I used the pool, for example, or the bike, I could probably do, and I'm, I'm a bit of a subscriber to block training, so like if I do a VO2 max block in triathlon, I'm prepared to do four, four to five sessions a week. Now you couldn't do that in running. Like if I said we're going to do five sessions of VO2 max running a week, you'd be like, you'd be rubbing your hands together as a physio. You're like, <laughs> seen this person in a couple of days, like yeah. trying to put them back together, and that coach is an idiot. But <laughs> I think we got an increase with Craig because at the end of the day, what we were able to do, we were able to do more specific work at that physiological workload. Um, and people would go, yeah, you increased his VO2 max. Did you increase it in the run? Yes, because we tested on the run treadmill. We didn't test, so we did non-specific running training at the intensities we would like to do and we got a shift in vo2 max that actually was demonstrated on the run yet we didn't we didn't do it on in actual fact he wasn't doing any vo2 max running at the time because because we were he was ready to do it but we were like just because you're ready we know the risk of doing it we don't want to get re-injured can we can we do your vo2 max workout or that that specific intensity workout in another discipline and reap the rewards in running without achieving any running and i think you know and I've got to be careful here because there's there's always the risk of confirmation bias of seeing what you want to see. Yeah. And I'd love to do more. Like I'd love to do more of it. But like I walked away from that going, 
yeah, that was pretty cool. And it wasn't about, yeah, I was right. It was just like, wow, that was cool. Like imagine, you know, imagine if you could do that. Imagine if you could get these runners in particular who go through these stages of injury. Imagine if you could get them to run faster with less running um, and using this other approach or whether it's getting them running faster or whether it's just getting them through their careers longer or more consistent performances. Um, yeah, I just think there's something in it that's, that's pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah, one more, Jono, because you've been so generous with your time. Um, I always like finishing on this one. Um, what have been some of the best learnings or advice um, that perhaps when you reflect on your own career or the early days in your coaching career that you wish you had um, going into going into it? Oh, it's a good question. It's a hot topic. I think, um, I think the traditional pathway for how we're educated as coaches um, is, this, is all about knowledge. Um, and I think that the times in my career where as a coach I ran the risk of not coaching or I ran the risk of not being employed had nothing to do with the specific sport knowledge. It had to do with... Uh, with leadership, interacting with others. It had to do with all these other things, which I was never, ever prepared for. Like I've, I've had to wing it and I've had to learn stuff away from sport to prepare myself to be a coach in sport. And so I wish that earlier people, you know, and my focus initially was the same as everyone else's. Like, oh, if I study swim, bike and run and I study physiology and I study basic anatomy and I study something, you know, or I surround myself with people, I'll be, you know, I'll be a great coach. Um, and, and there's obviously a part of that, but what no one prepared me for, especially with the national federations, was the politics, was the um, you know, dealing with parents, um, dealing with athletes who had um, you know, behavioural issues and that might you know, be around nutrition. Like, nothing prepares you for that stuff. And I would say that even now there's been an attempt to prepare young coaches for that, but it's hard to prepare it because it's... It's hard to write that into a curriculum. So, I mean, I just wish I'd had, and it's on me. I mean, at the end of the day, it's on me as well. But, like, I wish I'd been more aware or I'd had people earlier on that made me more aware because I had to learn the hard way. Um, and someone referred to me as a survivor recently, and I was like, I don't feel that old. But um, <laughs> there, is this, there is this survival piece of being a coach. You think, why would you talk about a coach being a survivor? And it's this notion of swim, bike, run in triathlon won't make you a survivor. It's how you operate in a very competitive and with national federations and even the international federation, a very ultra-political environment. And, and so my aim going forward with, with working with coaches is, is that they don't have to find out the, the way I did. Because I got, there's just some cases I got lucky. Like I worked it out or I was investing in working it out. And, and there were some close calls where some things would have just jeopardised my coaching career. And, and I just want to make sure that when coaches do come in, that they're at least painted the picture of what coach coaching really takes and that this specific you know individual discipline the coaching of those pieces and the you know the individual distance of physiology etc etc as important as they are without these this other skill set you're probably not going to make it um and so the delivery of that and how it's implemented is actually quite tough but it's one of those things like you know uh, i'm not in the you know going into them either with your eyes closed or going them in into that approach with a, with a denial kind of mindset, um, you're not you're not going to make it. You're going to be you're going to be caught out. And I just think there's a you know no difference to coaching athletes. There's in a way of equipping people with information, not just knowledge, information that sets them up to succeed. Um, and 
not through not through it was anyone's fault. I just don't think that when when I came through as a coach and I started coaching, the system aimed to set me up to succeed, and they taught me and and shared with me the things that they thought were relevant. But in my experience, there's a whole heap of other things that are relevant that I was never taught. And so, um, in any kind of learning organisation, you, you, you know you, you tend to learn the hard way, um, but Sometimes failing is the best, you know, is the only way you learn. So I, I struggled at times not to fail, um, but I've learned a lot from it. And I'm probably at the stage in my career where I'm like, well, I, I, you know, I'd hate to see people unnecessarily go through the pathway I did because it was it was a bit of a minefield. Like I had, I had to navigate it. And coaching, you know, coaching at the top Olympic level is hard enough as it is without having to navigate something. So you imagine, uh, you use your analogy, you know, I want you to coach someone and you've got to walk through a minefield at the same time. You're like, well, I'm going to stand on a mine, I'm going to trip over, you know, because the task that you're setting me is so exclusive. You know, this gold medal once every four years is so exclusive. It's so difficult to, to attain for an athlete that I've got to be focused. And if I'm that focused, I'm going to trip over what's underneath me. So my aim is to go, can we remove what's underneath the next generation of athletes, our coaches' feet by making them aware and giving them some tool sets. So when they get to that stage and they have that athlete who is a potential gold medalist, all they have to do is focus on that because they've taken care of all this stuff below their legs. So like you've said, I talk in, in a visual sense and, uh, and people probably can't see I'm, I'm talking with my hands and gesturing, but like this concept of uh, removing the obstacles um, and, and as a coach coming in, being aware of what the obstacles are so you at least have a chance to remove. Not everyone can remove the obstacles. Not everyone has the... The capability, the capacity to be as a coach, um, but if you don't know what's coming, you have no chance. And so, for me, that's probably one of the, you know, the, the next phases in my coaching um, career is to start to is really to start. You know, my role I'll be segueing out of coaching um, at some stage, and, and I'm not putting a date on that. Uh, and in that process, making sure that there's coaches coming through um, to fill, fill my shoes because. You know, if there's coaches listening, I mean, it, it is one of the most rewarding careers um, and it is exciting and it does give you a certain lifestyle. It, it's not glamorous and it's not as romantic as people think, but it's pretty cool. Um, and so it's just about making it easier for that next genera generation of coaches because if I can make it easier for the next generation of coaches, inadvertently I'm making it easier for the next generation of athletes as well. And that, that you know, you start then to talk about legacy and kind of leaving a little bit of a footprint behind which uh which i think ties in with coaching the concept of coaching as well yeah oh that's um that's yeah brilliant brilliant sort of you know message to finish on um like I, i'm yes so like you've made my day today johnny hall like just um having a chat and um everything you've said um yeah being glued to my seat so i think a lot of people will get a lot out of it a lot of keen runners listen to this podcast and a lot of keen coaches do as well um so yeah really really liked um even that stuff at the end particularly where you were talking about um i suppose the relationship that you've seen between triathlon training and and running training and um but yeah there's so much to take from from everything that you've said in terms of what you've learned and and your philosophies so yeah thanks so much for yeah, agreeing to be a part of it and being so generous with your time. If someone was to want to reach out to you um, uh, on, on um, Instagram or um, various social media, like how could they um, find where you're at? Yep. So um, on Instagram, um, on the multi-sport brain uh, is where you can find me. 
Um, Twitter is the same. Um, I'm just John O'Hall on Facebook. Um, I've taken a step back from posting in this COVID period because I think that so many people are using that as their coping mechanism and it's relevant to them that I've taken a step back. It isn't something... Um, like you won't find a lot of current stuff on my social media platforms right now because I made a choice that I didn't need it as far as my coping strategy and others did. So I, you know, I tried to make sure this space. And um, but you can contact me through that, and uh, and I'm always happy to share information. I I, I don't share everything on social media because I don't believe that what I have to say is you know every you know, necessarily everyone wants to hear. But in saying that, if people reach out to me, um, I've always got time for for coaches and athletes and. Um, or I've always got time, you know, time that's available to me, I'm more than willing to share. And, and so, like, same with today, it's been an absolute, uh, you know, pleasure and privilege. And, and, and it's, a, it's a huge part of my professional development to be asked the questions and, and answer the questions and constantly in my mind thinking, like, you know, is what I'm, you know, is what I'm presenting here what I'm doing and is, or am I identifying a gap in hearing myself speak and what I'm doing and do I need to go away and work on it? And even today, like, I'll go... I, noted a couple of things. I'm like, oh, I need to go away and just check on a couple of things that I'm, I've said there that, um, you know, build my confidence around my methodology and that. So, no, look, it's been an absolute pleasure and yes. please, if people have got questions, um, feel free to reach out and uh, and hopefully we can do this again and, yeah. and, uh, and you know, it's uh, because I find, like I said, personally and selfishly, it's, it's, it's really beneficial. Yeah, oh, same with me. That's what I've enjoyed about the podcast is um, like it, yeah, I feel like I'm, it's really fulfilling as a physio, like delivering um, some good in- education. But then selfishly, I've learned something from everyone I've interviewed. So, um, yeah. Awesome. Thanks again, Jono. Okay, absolute pleasure. Hope to speak soon. Yep.